Agency heads, look out. More aggressive congressional investigations are coming your way. Republican leaders on the House Oversight and Accountability Committee have already promised the committee's last name, accountability. As members organize their plans to zero in on the Biden administration, career federal employees should sit up straight. We get more now from Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. The tone shift for the House Oversight and Accountability Committee stretches beyond just a name change. Kentucky Republican James Comer, the committee's new chairman, has promised much deeper and more robust investigations into the Biden administration. It's something he has said did not happen under Democratic committee leadership. We're two years behind in oversight, so we're going to have to go back two years to try to get caught up uh, in addition to providing the current oversight and, and future oversight. I'm fed up with the public corruption. I'm fed up with the excessive spending, and I want to do something about it. That's my goal. That's what I hope to do with the House Oversight Committee. And I think that uh, we can play a, a huge role in investigating this administration. Now led by Republicans, the committee's decision to swap out the word reform for accountability indicates a larger shift in the priorities for the 118th Congress. Administration officials will soon see a much more robust investigation agenda. That's according to Andy Wright. He worked as staff director and counsel for the Oversight Committee's National Security and Foreign Affairs Subcommittee from 2007 to 2011. He's a current partner at K&L Gates. Here's Wright. It's been changed to oversight and accountability with the new Republicans taking charge, which suggests a more adversarial posture. It's going to be less about finding legislative solutions to a particular issue and more about bringing accountability to people who have potentially done something uh, that Congress thinks is wrong. So I think it, it is a more aggressive word. It is largely cosmetic, but it betrays a deeper change in the posture between the executive branch and the new Congress. Some of the committee priorities so far have centered on oversight of COVID-19 pandemic spending, and they've pushed forward attempts to return federal employees to the office. They've also laid out plans to conduct multiple investigations of the Biden administration. This oversight shift could impact agency leaders with now higher political tensions that come from a partisan divide between Congress and the White House. Chris Keevan is an attorney at Shaw, Bransford & Roth. Your average career civil servant, they're not used to being in the political arena. You know, they're not political creatures. You know, when all of a sudden you get put into that new world of, of politics, it's very different and, you know, it's a very different game and a very different process. And I think that really catches people off guard. So what should agency leaders expect to change? Mike Hettinger worked on the staff of the House Oversight and Reform Committee from 2003 to 2007. Here's Hettinger. I think Republicans conduct oversight differently. And, and um, in most cases, that's more aggressive. If you're sitting there in the, you know, in the administration now in a place where maybe you haven't had a ton of robust oversight, you know, coming from a Democratic Congress, you should expect a lot more, right? I mean, I think we've seen that historically. We've seen that initially here over the first couple of weeks. Agency personnel need to be ready for that. Beyond a more robust oversight agenda on the books, agency leaders should be prepared for pretty much anything. Here's Hettinger again. You get a lot of members that, that will come in and have something they want to talk about, which may or may not be, you know, part of necessarily what the hearing charter was focused on. So, you know, be prepared for any sort of question on topic, off topic. Um, be prepared for those questions to come, you know, rapid fire and aggressively. 
designed, I think, probably in a lot of ways to push people back on their heels a little bit, which is different, obviously, than softer oversight that you may have gotten from a Democratic Congress. Practicing ahead of time can help agency leaders get ready for hearings. Julie Dunn has seen both the agency and the congressional sides of the conversation. She was staff director and senior counsel for the Oversight Committee's Government Operations Subcommittee from 2017 to 2019. She's also former commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at the General Services Administration. She had some pretty clear advice for agency leaders. Here's Dunn. Prepare, prepare, prepare. I think people that had more trouble, they just didn't have the right preparation, I think. When I was in an agency and then, you know, we had our principals who were getting ready for hearings, we'd pretend to be members of the committee asking questions and have people go through the process because it really is a, a unique process when you're, you know, sitting there at the table and, and having to answer questions. And, you know, the stakes are high. There's a federal statute that says you can't lie to Congress, so you want to get it right. Often when I was formulating questions for agencies, you know, I'd look back at IG reports or I'd look back at former GAO recommendations and see if there was some sort of pattern or, or something that would help inform the conversation. It can sometimes take months of preparation for a committee hearing. Congressional staff will typically meet with witnesses and agency officials ahead of time. Being proactive in that relationship can give feds a bit of an edge. Creating good communications with staff, especially early on in the process, is crucial. Here's done again. I think it's just important, regardless of party, to establish communications at the staff level pretty early on. You know, even if there might be some bad news to deliver, I had an old boss that said bad news never gets better with time. So it's good to kind of have frank conversations. Be sure you have a, a working knowledge of, of the facts in play and understand as a principal what's been going on at the staff level, both congressional staff and your staff, to make sure you understand the tenor of those communications and you understand maybe, you know, what requests are outstanding and you have a good answer as to why those requests are outstanding. Some said addressing the problems earlier before getting to the hearing can help agency officials present their best case to Congress. And it can be beneficial to try to pinpoint congressional allies. Here's partner at K&L Gates, Andy Wright, again. Sometimes if you have a problem in an agency, you want to get ahead of it by making sure that you've corrected the problem so that by the time you're testifying, you have a lot of things to point to that were corrections. Sometimes you want to activate allies because Congress has 535 members and, you know, there may be some who are more in favor, not just on a partisan basis, but maybe on a geographic basis. Maybe they, you know, your agency has an important facility in their district and they might not have the same incentives to attack a certain policy choice. So you want to do that kind of traditional government relations type of work to try and find allies. Though it may become more aggressive, congressional oversight is in theory designed to create a better federal government. From the agency's perspective, it's really about putting your best case forward. Here's Hettinger again. If you have a witness that is sort of intimately involved in whatever issue it is and understands it and can you know, effectively answer the questions, I think those are the best witnesses, particularly when you have a situation that you know might get testy over time, right? They need to be prepared, right? They need to know their stuff. They need to be as transparent as they possibly can. They need to avoid saying things that will tick off the committee members and, and things like that. Some of that's bound to happen, but like anything else in life, you can prepare yourself as best you can and hope for the best. Drew Friedman, Federal News Network. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
The U.S. Agency for International Development has always used private sector groups to deliver services in various countries. Now the agency has launched what it calls Private Sector Engagement Modernize to deal with the private sector in a new way. Here with the whys and hows, the executive director of USAID's Private Sector Engagement Hub, Michael Metzler. Mr. Metzler, good to have you on. Thanks for having me, Tom. Really appreciate it. So private sector engagement modernization, what's going on here? Yeah, well, so before we jump into modernize, maybe set the table a bit. So USAID is, is the U.S. government's development aid agency. We have programs all around the world in very different, in all different sectors from health, education, democracy, governance. And we've been programming this, this work and doing this work for the last 60 years. For the last 20 years, we've been doing some of that work through the private sector, in partnership, I should say, with the private sector. And why would we do that is, is very simple. If we want to extend our work, if we want to accelerate our development impact, if we want to have greater reach around the world, the private sector is a critical partner for us in doing that. So we've been doing it for a long time. We've gotten quite good at it. But what we've learned is as we look at really scaling that work around the world, which we want to do, there's a lot of, she said, obstacles within the agency itself to get that work done. And so the agency has set out a very, very bold vision to scale private sector engagement across the agency and mainstream it across all of our different programs. To realize that vision, what we've decided is we really got to take an internal look at how the agency is structured, its operating systems, its processes, because frankly, a lot of those over a long period of time were developed not with private sector engagement in mind. And so there are a lot of internal barriers that we're facing to really uh, realizing that vision of scaling private sector engagement. Our office, the hub, has taken on these this kind of burden busting within the agency. And so it's very different work than what we've traditionally done on the programmatic side, but it's pretty critical to realize that vision that, uh, that the agency has put out there. What are the obstacles to scaling private sector engagement? Unfortunately, there are many, but the, the good news is they can be addressed. So I, many of your listeners will appreciate this within the federal government. Everything from our HR systems to our data gathering systems, our relationship management systems, our procurement systems. These are critical systems in, through which we do our work at USA. Many of your listeners do their work in their agencies. Yeah, some of them are bureaucratic. We, we live in and work in the federal government. But for aid, I think more, more to the point, they just weren't built originally. We're a 60-year-old agency. We've been doing private sector engagement for the past 20, 25 years. And we're still using basic processes and systems that were built not for private sector engagement. So what we're trying to do is not recreate those systems and processes. We're just trying to adapt them to make this work easier because we are convinced there's a lot of excitement around engaging in the private sector in development work all around the world. It is growing by the day. Our, our own policy on private sector engagement says the future of development is really to engage the private sector at scale. And so there's a lot of excitement around doing the work, but there's also a lot of frustration, frankly, both within the agency and outside with our partners. Once we partner with them, they say, we would love to do a lot more with USAID, but it takes too long, it's too expensive, it's pretty frustrating, and so sure. can you guys clean up your shop? And that's what we're doing. There seems to be two aspects to this. One is the procurement and data gathering and so forth processes yep. for what the agency buys to operate itself and that it has in common with every agency. You've got to buy computers. Yep. You've got to buy office furniture. You've got to hire people. But the external engagements in the countries where USAID operates, you use nonprofits, local organizations, construction yep. companies, food yep. delivery companies, etc. Yep. So it's contracting with them 
using USAID dollars. That's the crux of the issue here? No, actually, I'm really glad you brought up that question because it, it, it's a really important distinction to make. What we're talking about when we say engaging the private sector, it's actually not on the procurement side in terms of the vendor relationship where we where we buy things either for our, our own offices around the world or even when we spend money within our programs through what we call our implementing partner. What we're talking about is working with the private sector on our actual programs. Let me give you a real quick example that uh, I think would be helpful. Coca-Cola. We've worked with Coca-Cola around the world. Not not as a they're not our vendor, they're our partner. And why do we work with Coca-Cola? Well, they have a real business interest around the world and getting clean water into their bottling plants. That, that, that They need that to make money to be successful. A very important development aim for a lot of our programs around the world is to help local communities access clean water and keep clean water systems in place, right? So there's a clear, direct overlap between our development interest and the community's development interest in Coca-Cola's businesses. Really good example of why we should work with Coca-Cola because together we can do a lot more than we could do separately on our own. And so that, so what we try to do is find those opportunities around the world with companies like Coke, Pepsi, Starbucks, UPS. I mean, I can go on and on. We have seven, over 700 different relationships like that. That's what we mean by private sector partnership. And, and that's what we're trying to do more of with the private sector. Right. So that doesn't really lend itself to standard federal procurement at all. It, it doesn't. Like I said, for USA building system and operating model for what it needed for a long period of time. And then the agency really was a pioneer in, in saying, you know what, private sector is penetrating a lot of the markets that they traditionally were not in, but we've always been in and the communities we care about more and more by the day, maybe we should start working with them. And that, that was 20, 25 years ago. And, and we've done some incredible partnerships over that time. And, and now we've matured in that work enough to step back and say, okay, what is now holding us back? It's not the culture of the agency. It's not the, uh, it's not the private sector itself. They're willing to work with us. Right now, what we're facing is, frankly, the bureaucracy that uh, wasn't built for it. We're going to adapt it for the future. That's what Modernize is all about. We're speaking with Michael Metzler, executive director of the Private Sector Engagement Hub at USAID. Yeah, because in some sense, you have to be arm's length because USAID doesn't exist to help the Coca-Cola company or anybody else. But yet in the country, that nation, those people and Coca-Cola have a common interest in, in this case, as you mentioned, fresh water or whatever the case might be, clean water. And so it sounds almost as if you might be looking at a memorandum of understanding approach as opposed to a procurement approach, just to make sure that everybody's interests remain separated, but yet you can cooperate on the end goal, which is clean water, in your case, for the people of XYZ Nation, and on Coca-Cola's case, clean water for Coca-Cola. Yeah, typically a lot of these partnerships are memorialized in things like memorandum of understanding, and usually they cover the entire relationship with each of our companies. One of the things we're doing under Modernize, actually, is professionalizing our relationship management function within the agency. So when we engage these companies at a global level, we actually can do it in a a way where we set multi-year strategies with them. We have dedicated professionalized folks that work that relationship to make sure we're doing is maximizing that relationship around the world. Frankly, getting customer relationship management technology in place so we can actually track that relationship around the world. That, that, that's a really good example of where our systems haven't caught up to all these relationships. We have a very hard time tracking in real time everything we're doing with, use the Coke example, but again, there's, there's many more Coca-Cola all around the world. Well, if, if we're spending any amount of time 
not efficiently tracking that relationship and nurturing that relationship, we're wasting time, we're wasting energy on both sides of the relationship that could be better spent focused on more and new and scale programming with them. Plus, those companies also, those private sector engagees, if you will, can bring a lot of expertise to the issue as well. I mean, Tremendous. Uh, you look inside a Coca-Cola bottling plant, there's probably a lot of technology and equipment that is common to a water processing plant. And I imagine in the case of Starbucks, if I don't know, do they roast beans? There's, you know, commercial operation of ovens. I'm just making this up. But that applies here, correct? Well, yeah, you're doing a good job of making it up because that's exactly it. I mean, you know, these if you look at the multinationals, but I, I let me just point out, I'm using multinational examples, but we also do a lot of sure. partnership at the local level with local private sector, which are also very critical to this. Just to kind of understand the model, you're exactly right. These these companies bring tremendous expertise, technology, logistics, reach, know-how, which is why it's important that we work with them because they bring capabilities to the table that we don't necessarily have, or they can bring it to the table at scale that we don't necessarily have. At the same time, they look at USAID for USA, what USA can bring to the table. Of course, we have a 60-year presence in a lot of these countries. We have a, a stellar reputation in most of these countries that they can partner with us on. We, we're able to reduce their risk of entry into a lot of these countries, especially when they want to extend their supply chains and into, you know, geographies that we've been working for a long time. And so they look to us as they look to expand. We bring a lot to the table to help them and we're happy to help them if what they bring accelerates development and our development objectives. So everybody benefits from better development in nations that need better development. And if that happens to be the commercial interest, great. And if USAID's mission in helping countries join the modern economy, then great also. My question is, what's the first thing you're going to do under this? You've got a fact sheet. What are you actually doing first? Under modernize. So modernize, you know, as we took a step back and looked at the agency systems, we've identified nine critical areas. There are nine initiatives, sub-initiatives under under modernize. We, our administrator, Samantha Power, launched officially the whole modernize initiative under her leadership in October. We had done a lot of pre-work on that. So we, we are moving forward on all nine of the those initiatives, probably the one we're furthest along is what I just mentioned, which is our relationship management system. We have to do a better job as an agency engaging, particularly our largest and most strategic corporate partners in a more holistic way as a way to maximize those relationships. So one quick example, we have identified the 30 most strategic relationships with the 30 most strategic multinational. We've put people in in relationship management positions. That's part of their official position. We're professionalizing that. We're training them up and we're getting the right systems in place where we can track in real time across the whole agency where those relationships are, what is part of those relationships and where they're going. Yeah, often companies and federal operators don't even speak the same language. So <laughs> there's probably yeah. a way to harmonize that. So the You're you are exactly I, I you are exactly right. I mean that that's another big piece of what we're trying to do is education on both sides of that discussion because you're right. They do not we do not speak the same same language. Part of the professionalizing of that of that role is getting people actually from the private sector, ideally, that can come in and help us internally with not only speaking the language of the private sector, but just understanding how the private sector sees the world and how they think, because it's very different from the way we think internally. I would think that'd be a great opportunity for someone that's had a corporate career, sell the stock, divest of that company, but then you could really 
have a great public service piece to kind of crown it all. Yeah, I mean, I, you, you're touching on another major part of Modernize, which is the HR piece. Frankly, as an agency, we do a great job of, of attracting folks that have lived abroad, speak another language, worked in developing countries, our academics in the, in the technical area that we need them in. But we not do a great job attracting people from the private sector. And if we want to really change the agency and really, really scale what we're doing with the private sector, we need to do a much better job of attracting the private sector. One of the big burdens to attract the private sector is what you pointed out, Tom, which is they see our job announcements, federal job announcements, and they can't understand what they're reading. So that, that you know, that's like the first entry point. They have to understand what the job actually is. So part of what we're doing with our, our HR folks in partnership with our HR is like just really rethinking every step of the hiring process, performance management, all the way through to separation and every part of that life cycle of the HR life cycle, how can we adapt the systems to really uh, attract people from the private sector, keep them once we have them, train them up and really have them get them to a place where they can have successful private se- uh, public sector careers after they've done private sector work or we we attract them away from the private sector into the public sector. And how about you? Are you a career U.S. aider or are you from industry? So the irony is I am the latter. I, I am I am trying to hire less of people like me into the agency. Uh, I, I did not come from the private sector. I actually have, have a fairly typical background for uh, current hiring in USAID. I was a, a Peace Corps volunteer. I spent some time in the NGO world, uh, went, got my development economics degree, and then uh, entered the agency there. So I, I've been, well, and, and, and don't get me wrong, I, I'm saying this a bit tongue in cheek, we definitely need all kinds of people coming into the agency. But but as we look at the profile of the of the workforce and aid, what is clearly missing is this piece on the private, attracting people from the private sector. So we just have to do a better job at that. We're not displacing other types of employees. We need them all. But if we do better in that, it's going to be a lot easier to change the agency from the inside if you get people from the out, coming in from the outside that understand better how the private sector operates. I would classify you as an optimist. Uh, I try. I, look, I, I do think we talk about this a lot. It is not easy to change a federal bureaucracy from the inside. And every, anybody that's trying to do that uh, knows that we're trying to do it in a, in a holistic fashion across nine different dimensions. And we're trying to do it as fast as we possibly can. It is tough work, there's no doubt about it, but um, but everybody that's involved in it knows that it needs to be done if we're really going to go to the next generation of private sector development and engagement within the agency. So I think people are generally excited about it. You know, folks like me that have been doing development a long time and then have to have to transition to figuring out how HR systems work and procurement systems work at a, at a level of detail I've never engaged. It's it's it's. It's sure. interesting. It's challenging, but it's interesting. But but it's uh, the, the payoff of all this is what really people have their set their sights on. Well, if you figure out the far in detail, let us know. <laughs> we just... have folks that are trying to do that right now. And are you actually doing this internally? That is to say, you don't have a $10 million contract with McKinsey or something. Another great question. We are all doing this internally. And in fact, uh, my personal view is that's the only way it's going to get done uh, because you really need people on the inside a lot of this is, you know, a lot of these, um, to change a lot of these systems, we really need strong partnerships and good relationships. And, you know, the first the first thing you need is leadership cover. And and frankly, we couldn't have better leadership cover from our current 
from the current administration. I mentioned our administrator, Samantha Power, has this view that we need to do what we're doing within Modernize across all of USAID programming. And so her leadership has been critical, but also partnership with our CIO colleagues has been great on some of the systems work. And our HR folks are really open to working with us on that. And so that's critical too, because if they weren't on board, um, it would not get done. And so I'm, I'm very happy with the internal collaboration that we've seen thus far. All right. We're going to check back with you in a few months to see how it's going. I would love it. I would love it. Really appreciate the time. Michael Metzler is executive director of the Private Sector Engagement Hub at USAID. Thanks so much for joining me. Take care, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a fact sheet about the new engagement initiative at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Few acquisitions seem to vex the government more than information technology. It's a major expenditure each year at something like $100 billion government-wide. One civilian in the Air Force has demonstrated how to buy IT effectively. He's the Ops C2 Acquisition Chief at Hanscom Air Force Base. And the third in this week's series of this year's Defense Acquisition Workforce Award winners, Ryan Silvanic joins me now. Mr. Silvanic, good to have you on. Yeah, it's great to be on with you, Tom. Tell us, first of all, generally what you do at Hanscom. What kind of IT, what do you buy, and for what purpose? I specifically work in Kessel Run, which is a division under the Air Force Lifecycle Management Center, Digital Directorate. So what we do, we run a program office, essentially, with seven different programs operating under DOD 5087, so Software Acquisition Pathway. And what we do, you know, you talked IT solutions. What we do is we deliver software solutions and capabilities all centered around command and control. So I think one of the most well-known programs within the division or across the Air Force is the Air Operations Center. So think of it kind of as the hub and the brains behind how we fight the air war within the Air Force and the joint community. So the software that you acquire then is used Air Force-wide. It just happens to be located at the Kessel Run operation of Hanscom. Correct. Yeah. Our software that we procure, we actually develop a lot of our software when it comes to the specifics of this effort, but we develop it and deliver it. We had a focus over uh, in the the 609th AOC, which is overseas in Qatar, but now we're shifting to align to the national defense strategy. So the PACAF region. So, but we support all over um, sites across the world. So that's what we do. Well, if there are people that are developing software in the Air Force, how does acquisition come into it? That was a creative challenge way back when, when uh, Kessel Run, you know, before it actually started and became a thing, how do we buy software and deliver software a better way? Because the waterfall process has always been very slow and arduous. And I think there's been a nice resurgence of innovation and in how do we actually upskill our warfighter and our acquisition community to deliver better software on time and when we actually need it, the speed of relevancy. So we started out as a small effort basically to prove out that we could do something better than what was, if you recall, or if many of the listeners recall, the AOC 10.2 program. It was a ACAT 1 special interest, $700 million, and you know never actually went anywhere, and the program was canceled. So at the time, Senator McCain had denied our request for additional funding and continued down that effort and said, go figure something else out. So we had partnered with DIUX. Uh, at the time and you know, trying to figure out how do we build software and get it out there a better way. And 
It's kind of where Kessel Run was born, starting working side by side with the user, getting user feedback, quick feedback cycles, getting things out to them as quick as possible to get validation rather than, hey, we're going to come up with a 300 page document that has all these requirements. And then we think we know what we do. And then a year or two years later, it's actually fielded and Maybe it's not the right thing or it's OBE by that time. So you're doing the scrum assembly line delivery short iteration type of DevSecOps, you might say. Yeah, it would be the latter, probably that agile development, DevSecOps. That's what we do at Kessel Run. And it's interesting because 30 years ago, the Air Force started to divest itself of what they call you know, blue shirts doing coding. And that lasted for about 20 years. Now they're back in the coding business. But there's also acquisition of software developed externally through Kessel Run. True? That is true as well. We definitely kind of run the gamut. I said we have seven programs within Kessel Run. Even within the AOC, we have programs that are out there today, the AOC 10.1 baseline. We procure a lot of our software or IT, and that is integrated together, but a lot of those things are purchased off the shelf. We're speaking with Ryan Silvanic. He's Ops C2 Acquisition Chief at Hanscom Air Force Base in Massachusetts and a Defense Acquisition Workforce Award winner. And in all of this seven projects and the buying externally and managing internally, what do you think, or you probably know, what project landed you this award from the Defense Department? Yeah, so I would say it's uh, it's all tied to our delivery of the Kessel Run all-domain operations suite. So that's a mouthful, but we call it Kratos. It's basically the software to replace the heart of what is uh, out there in the AOC today for C2 command and control. We delivered the minimum viable product, our MVP, as well as uh, the minimum viable capability release to the 609. And it actually was operationally adopted and used for day-to-day ops for the first time in 20 years. So TBMCS has been out there for two decades. And this was the first tool that's been adopted to build the air tasking order and the air control order for the Air Force. And did it simply replace logic that had been out there for 20 years, or were you able to enhance the functionality of C2 itself? I think it was a little bit of both. We're trying to aim for parity because that's what the users know, but we're also trying to make improvements as we deliver and feel capability. And all of this is done in different languages than the old logic and so forth, so it's probably more complicated than it sounds. Yeah, so the... Old tools are not cloud native. They're not built for, you know, IaaS or PaaS in mind. What Kratos aims to do is utilize the, you know, the technologies that are available today. And we do that larger Kessel Run, not just for Kratos, but we try to leverage what cloud technologies are out there today. And we experience a lot of efficiency and better productivity because of that. And does any of this add up to the Air Force's contribution to the eventual JADC2 effort, which is, of course, DOD-wide? Yeah, I think there's definitely direct tie-ins from a capability perspective. Everything that uh, we're doing at the C2 level for the AOC is going to eventually tie into what we need to do for the joint space. I don't know if we have a full roadmap yet, but that's definitely where we're heading. And we have that in mind on how we build this capability out and then we can scale and mature it over time to adopt to whatever the future holds for JADC2. And do you come at this from an acquisition background, from a business background, from a coding background? And what do you specifically do? It sounds like a lot of projects that have to be monitored and kept on track. Yeah. So I wouldn't say I know this award was for IT, more so IT management for me. I'm a business background. I've been working acquisition, you know, your traditional acquisition program manager ever since I actually graduated college. So it's been a long time working in the acquisition career field. This is the first 
program though that I've been where we're working and figuring out how to do agile software development. So it's been exciting to say the least. And how do you manage the relations between the Air Force people doing work and external parties, contractors doing work? That must be a little bit of cultural and political grounds too, to kind of harmonize. Yeah, every organization has a little bit different culture. But for the most part, I would say what we try to do is our teams work side by side. So we might have an application team that consists of eight contractors, four military and two civilians. But you know, everyone shows up in basically the same uniform, which is like, you know, T-shirt, jeans, hoodie, and they sit down and work on a problem space together. So we try to break those walls down and those silos down, which, you know, traditionally would be, you know, you have um, contractors over here doing their thing and then bringing it together. For the most part in Kratos, they work side by side and actually are aligned around a common problem. And are people just out of curiosity generally back in facilities working physically near one another so they can say, hey, how do I solve this and what did you do about that? Yeah, I think for the most part, we're still in that hybrid approach where it's a lot of remote. We do have a lot of remote hires and stuff like that. So I guess the one good thing with COVID, it opened up people's ideas on you know allowing remote and virtual workforce. We were kind of set up and primed to do that because we had people that were located around the country. And then this kind of opened the aperture even more and allowed us to continue to leverage those resources and also target people. It's hard, it's hard to get cleared people all in the same location with that experience or domain space willing to work here. So being remote, it actually opens up the opportunities to get more diversity, better competency, that kind of thing. And anything exciting happening in the year ahead? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, lot of excitement. I kind of alluded to it, you know, focusing on the Pacific region, but that's one area we, we want to continue to grow and scale the software that we've delivered. So that's going to be a big challenge. So like any challenge, I think there's a lot of opportunities to excel. So definitely what we're looking forward to this year. Ryan Silvanic is Ops C2 Acquisition Chief at Hanscom Air Force Base in Massachusetts and a Defense Acquisition Workforce Award winner. Thanks so much for joining me. It's great to be here. It was great talking to you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive podcast version wherever you get your shows. Contractors have only a couple more weeks to comment on a so-called climate risk rule. If it becomes final, the rule would impose big reporting and operational costs. This, as the Pentagon and the industry are trying to figure out how to deal with inflation-related upswings in costs... Here to help sort it all out, Haynes and Boone procurement attorney Zach Prince. And Zach, let's get into this issue of this climate rule. This is for everybody, and it's not just necessarily reporting, but also you might have to do things differently. Tell us about it. That's right, Tom. So there are two categories of contractor that this rule would apply to. There are significant contractors and major contractors. It's challenging to define exactly what either of these two are because the rule is not very well written. A significant contractor is a contractor that's received $7.5 million to $50 million in federal contract obligations in the prior federal fiscal year. I'm not sure what a federal contract obligation is. It's not a well-defined term. So whether that means that a contractor has actually received payment of those amounts or it means the contractor has received contract awards – that are valued up to those thresholds, like it would be for the cost accounting standards or similar FAR rules, it's totally unknown. All right. So we don't know precisely who it would affect at the two levels, but what would it do once that's figured out? <laughs> so once that's figured out, on an annual basis, significant contractors, that is the ones that receive 7.5 to $50 million 
the prior year in whatever that means, uh, they would have to report their scope one and scope two greenhouse gas emissions. It's going to be challenging for them to figure out exactly what that entails, but it's something that they'll have to get a handle of fairly quickly. Yes, because I keep asking this question, if you are a services contractor and you are providing our labor-based types of contracts, what are you doing? People driving to work? Is that what it is? Or maybe the boss had too many beans for lunch? I mean, what do they mean by these emissions in that context? It's not like you're pouring steel and delivering it by diesel truck to a train. So it, it seems that the rule applies to manufacturers, not to service contractors. But that's one of the points that the FAR Council needs to clarify, and it's next step before there's any final rule. And what about those that are neither service contractors nor manufacturers? Suppose you are a reseller and there is some delivery component and you represent manufacturers. That's how a lot of product gets into the government. What about those people? We have to wait and see. We have to wait and see. These are some of the many questions that the comments should be raising with the agency. And with respect to those different levels of reporting of CO2 and emissions, I mean, what do those entail, say, if you are a manufacturer? What do we know about what it is you're going to have to do? Scope 1 and 2 looks at your own emissions. Scope 3 is a much more challenging issue to get a handle on. And scope three reporting is going to be applicable to major contractors, that is, entities with 50 million or more. And that requires going into your supply chain and figuring out emissions that are as a consequence of your activities. And that begs the question of how do you get that information from your supply chain? Are you going to have to flow down clauses? How are you going to have to flow those down? How do the subs figure out how they're allocating greenhouse gas emissions to a particular purchaser? None of these are easy to answer. Or how do you know what they are from any source at all in the first place? Oh, that's right. And what about any consequential actions? All right, suppose you are able to figure out, well, this contract and this deliverable is emitting 6.2 tons of CO2 per quarter. So what? If you're a major contractor, that means you have to establish targets for reductions that align with the Paris Agreement. I see. So you can't say, well, next month it's going to be seven tons. It's got to go down. Well, you have to establish the target, but the rule isn't clear about what happens if you don't start meeting those targets. At this point, then, what should, in your opinion, contractors be doing? Just following step by step what's going on and probably, I would say, comment. That's exactly right. And I'd say get involved with an organization that's going to be submitting comments. National Defense Industrial Association and Professional Services Council, for example, and others. And the ABA is going to be submitting comments. Pretty much every major organization that's involved in this area is going to submit comments because sure. this is really critical. And if you go through the associations, they'll take all the swear words out and, and keep you honest there. We're speaking with Zach Prince. He's a partner at the law firm Haynes & Boone. And another matter I wanted to ask you about is this unclear issue, Section 822 of the most recent National Defense Authorization Bill for 2023 and the idea of compensating contractors for inflation-induced rises in cost. There's some question as to how widespread that will be and what kinds of contracts it applies to. That's right. And inflation relief is something that we've talked about a few times already in the past year. It's on everybody's mind who's in this space. You know, Historic levels of inflation, they seem to be coming down a bit. But if you're operating under a fixed-price contract where the pricing was established years ago, you didn't build in contingency for completely ahistorical inflation pressures. Last year, DOD came out with two memos. One said, 
you're out of luck if you want to get any relief. Right. There's no basis for it. The second one said, actually, maybe there's some relief that can be granted in exchange for some quid pro quo. It wasn't clear what that entailed. Or contractors could always apply for extraordinary contract relief under Public Law 84805. But that is really rarely granted. So in response, Congress heard the complaints of industry. They added the Section 822 to the National Defense Authorization Act last year that would allow DOD discretion to grant contractors and subcontractors under fixed-price contracts some relief to the extent that inflationary pressures increase their costs beyond the price. But it's dependent on a couple factors. One, it's totally discretionary. Two, the NDAA is not an appropriations bill. So it expressly says this depends on there being appropriated funding available for use by DOD, and it has a time period. It only runs through the end of next year, and it can't be implemented until DOD puts out guidance, which they have to do within 90 days. Right. This raises a lot of questions surrounding DOD. One, is there money for that? Just as a parallel question in a different domain, the replacement munitions and systems for delivery from the extraction of our stockpiles that have gone to Ukraine. Nobody knows where that money is coming from or whether they'll replenish and so forth. So really, the increase in the budget for DOD in the coming year, it hasn't really sifted out to where that money's precisely going to go. It's an unfortunate problem, and it's a disconnect that often happens in this space where you have authorization on the one hand for laudable policy goals, but it doesn't come with money. And you can't commit the government to anything without available appropriations. It's actually a crime by the agency person who does it. And I guess it's fair to say then here, too, that if you're a contractor, if you're worried about this, the least you should be documenting your costs and cost increases that seem inflationary so you're prepared for what might come down the pike. Get ready because the money for this is going to be limited and the time is limited. So you want to be engaging with your customer early to try to make sure you can be one of the lucky few who actually get relief under the statute. I guess if you're the person who supplies the omelet breakfasts in the Pentagon and what we've seen with the cost of eggs, you've probably got a pretty good case for a price escalator given what a dozen eggs cost nowadays. <laughs> That's right. Zach Prince is a partner at the law firm Haynes & Boone. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive podcast edition wherever you get your shows. The Environmental Protection Agency has a growing workload under the Inflation Reduction Act, but its civil enforcement workforce is shrinking, dropping by more than a third over the past decade. The EPA has reached a 20-year low for closing civil enforcement cases. For details, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the former director of civil enforcement, now with the Environmental Integrity Project, Eric Schaefer. I think first big problem is budget cuts that have eliminated more than a thousand staff positions from the EPA enforcement program over the last 10 years. That's about almost a third of the workforce they had back in 2012. Those are very, very deep cuts. I'm not sure many people are aware of that. We have some of the best environmental laws in the world. They don't mean a thing if they're not enforced. That takes people, engineers, scientists, inspectors, investigators, 
and there are just a lot fewer of them than there used to be. Second issue is we still don't have a confirmed political appointee to manage EPA's enforcement program. And that is no disrespect to the acting assistant administrator, Larry Starfield. He's a good guy. But the political appointee is Biden's chosen leader for the enforcement program, got nominated in June of 2021, still waiting to be confirmed in the third year of the Biden presidency. Yeah, something we have seen time and again with these sorts of situations is that there's always a very capable career person keeping the operations running, but it really does take that political appointee to set a long-term vision for the agency or the office. Absolutely. It creates uncertainty to have that sort of hovering year after year. Let's hope third time's the charm, I think, with 51 votes in the Senate. That David Ullman, who is the nominee, by the way, has support from everybody at Bar Association, the industry lawyers, the environmental groups, former political appointees, both Republican and Democrat. You couldn't come with a bigger cast of characters supporting the nomination. So there's no controversy. And let's hope this spring they manage to get him through. It seems like that diminishment of the workforce, the cops on the beat in terms of that frontline enforcement action, that translates into fewer cases going through the court system. EPA's own enforcement report for the last fiscal year, 2022, makes that really stark. They include a graph which shows the decline in the number of enforcement actions that were closed, that is, were successfully finished, resulted in cleanup and a penalty for the violator. That's dropped about 44%, I think, if I have the numbers right, over the last 10 years. On the same chart that shows that decline, they'll show you the corresponding decline in enforcement staff levels over that same 10-year period. And those two lines run almost exactly in tandem, downwards. I've never seen EPA do that before. I've never seen the agency put declining resources next to declining enforcement outcomes. I have to get this in at some point. This year, we've seen the first real increase in enforcement that I've seen in a long time. Senator Durbin, Senator Warren, Senator Markey have joined up and pushed for more funding, and they are finally making a difference. So it doesn't get EPA enforcement all the way back or nearly all the way back to where it was, but it's certainly a good first step. In terms of this workforce challenge, it seems like this isn't the kind of thing that gets resolved overnight, even if the EPA did have the resources to hire back and address this gap in its workforce. These are people that I imagine would need a certain level of training, particularly if they're going to go after those more intense cases, those you know, well-resourced uh, companies that you referenced here. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that onboarding, what that training would look like for these kinds of people? You know, I can't emphasize enough. Enforcement is really hard. You've got to marshal the evidence to prove your case. You have to be able to stand behind it. You need scientists to do that. You need engineers, not just to help you uncover violations, help you understand what you're looking at, but also to put together the remedy that you're asking polluters to accept. You need, obviously, talented and hardworking attorneys. You need people with a nose for the forensics that are involved in developing a case. You know, not everybody likes that kind of work. 
but there certainly are people who do, and that does take training. In some cases, you can bring people in who have experience. I expect EPA will have to also bring in some younger employees, which I actually think is a great thing. The program needs to rebuild and want enthusiastic younger employees, but sure, it'll take time. One complaint I'm hearing is that it's taking an incredibly long time to onboard staff at EPA. That means after you've sorted through applications, figured out who the best candidate is, looking at all the factors you have to juggle, it can be six months or more before that person is actually in the job. And that's much worse than I remember. You know, it, I hope that problem gets fixed. That sounds all too familiar with what we've seen, not just at the EPA, but across the federal government more broadly. That seems to be a problem because these are well-educated, well-trained prospective employees. And to wait six months, they're likely going to go somewhere else. We've already seen that on the political appointee front. You know, we have the nominee for the solid waste office for the program chief for that office gone. They gave up. They've been waiting two years for confirmation. We had the woman who was appointed for the office that manages budget and operations for EPA. Very important, but also very non-political. Her nomination just sat there for the better part of a year. She had to go back to work. She said, I can't, you know, I can't be just hanging out here with no job. And, you know, for the professionals you're trying to recruit, you're absolutely right. You can wait for word that you can actually start a job you've been hired for for more than six months in a lot of cases. That seems nutty. It seems like while we're talking about the onboarding, about the time to hire, it seems like it's not just EPA needing to beef up its enforcement operations, but also it seems that they might need to hire some folks in their HR office to kind of manage the sort of long-term hiring that does need some oversight and some central planning here. Yeah, so I think that would be a good idea. That makes a lot of sense to me. I've got to say, though, that I think the biggest part of the problem is that the Office of Personnel Management, I've heard, has pulled in more of the hiring responsibility and more of the paperwork. That's adding red tape and backlog. So bringing more people into EPA won't fix that. It seems to me like if this is really a government-wide problem, it needs White House attention. Eric Schaefer, executive director of the Environmental Integrity Project and the former director of civil enforcement at the EPA, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com.